welcome to the Medical College of Wisconsin's Coffee Conversations with Scientists. Since early 2021, we've been sharing the science behind today's most important health topics. Coffee Conversations is brought to you by the Advancing a Healthier Wisconsin Endowment, a statewide nonprofit uh, working to improve health and advance health equity in Wisconsin. I'm Dr. Michael Zimmerman, Director of the Bioinformatics Research and Development Lab at MCW's Mellows Genomics Center for Precision, um, Genomic Sciences and Precision Medicine Center. Uh, I'm Assistant Professor of Bioinformatics at our Clinical and Translational Sciences Institute and the Department of Biochemistry at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Today, I'm joined by Jenny Gertz. Ms. Gertzen is, is an Assistant Professor in the Institute for Health and Equity at the Medical College of Wisconsin. She is also a clinical genetics counselor and currently uh, serves as the inaugural program director for the Master of Science in Genetic Counseling training program at MCW. Ms. Gertz has been in practice for over 15 years and has specialized in a variety of genetic conditions, including oncology, cardiology, neurology, gastroenterology, and endocrinology. She most recently has provided clinical care with an emphasis in the inherited cancer conditions at Frederick Medical College Clinical Cancer Center and she's board certified by the American Board of Genetic Counseling. Welcome, Jenny. Thank you, Dr. Zimmerman. It's great to be here. We'll be covering a great list of questions regarding the science behind genetic counseling and genetic testing. Certainly genetics is important to health and healthcare, yet it is uh, one of the multiple factors in healthcare. Being newer to healthcare, it's less familiar to many people, which is why we wanna talk about it today. Genetic testing, being such a broad topic, will not be able to address its many facets. Suffice to say, researchers and providers, including us and those around the world, are working to incorporate more precise information for each patient to tailor your care. I encourage all of you watching to drop any questions you have into the topic, on the topic into the comments. Uh, we'll be getting to as many of those as possible today. We'll start with a focus on learning about the process of genetic testing and family health history. So let's get started. Jenny, could you tell us all, what is genetic counseling? Well, that's a great place to start. <laughs> um, genetic counseling defined as the process of helping people understand and adapt to the medical, psychological, and familial implications of genetic contributions to disease. So this process is integrating, interpreting family and medical histories to assess the chance that a disease might occur or recur. It involves education about the inheritance testing, management, prevention, resources, and research, and it's counseling to promote informed choices and adaptation to the risk or condition. So when I heard the title of today's um, topic, I thought the science behind it, the science is the basic science, you know, what we know about genetics and testing and all the great technologies that are coming on hand, and then also the social science, the people, how we understand risk, what does it mean for our family? So it's the combination of both those two. I think it's a great combination. So in order to do uh, genetic counseling, of course, we have to have something to talk about. So uh, could you tell us what is genetic testing? Yeah, so we'd like to distinguish those two things, counseling mm -hmm. from the testing, because the counseling is the appointment, it's the conversation, um, it's getting the information. The testing is the actual action of doing a DNA test. So it's a process where we analyze DNA, um, your inherited genetic material, and there are thousands of types of genetic tests that can be done on various samples. We mostly use a blood or a saliva sample. 
And, you know, a quick note on that, even, you know, different tests can, of course, be analyzed in different ways. And again, we don't have time to get in all the facets uh, that there is, but just want to put a little uh, plug for that uh, side of things, too. What, Jenny, what are the benefits to patients and individuals for genetic testing? Thanks for that question. A lot of people ask when they're referred, you know, why why do I have to go to this appointment? What's the, the what's mm -hmm. the purpose of the, the test? Um, so really what we're trying to do is a few things. One is provide risk information for individuals and families. Am I at a higher risk to develop this condition? And that may be useful for you know, family planning or health and lifestyle decision-making. Um, but also the second big piece of this is providing information that's useful for medical management. So individuals, doctors, or care teams may want to know the results of a genetic test because it may offer options to prevent or early detect or find a more effective treatment against different types of conditions that could have an inherited component. And in some cases, it, the testing actually helps relieve anxiety or end uncertainty with the patient and what they've known about their family history. So I want to follow up on what you just said there about about uncertainty. So on, on one hand, we all seek certainty, especially in, in, in healthcare. We want to know what's going on and what do we do about it. Yet the genome is a big place that we continue to explore. In genetic counseling, how do you balance communication about uncertainty versus uncertainty? Certainty versus uncertainty. Yes, that's a big question. So we talk about genetic tests um, in the terms of, you know, we cannot predict the future. It's not a crystal ball, so to speak. Um, in many cases, we're, we're merely assessing and saying that the risk for developing the condition is increased, but it's not guaranteed. And a common example we talk about is with the breast cancer genes, BRCA1 and 2, and the risk for developing breast cancer, where someone may carry um, a change in that gene that increases their risk for cancer, but it's not a guarantee that they would develop the condition. Um, and in other cases, the genetic test is more diagnostic, and it tells us the person definitely has the condition, such as testing for something like Down syndrome. But even in that case, we can't accurately predict how severe someone might be affected. So in that case, we encourage you know, expecting parents who might be um, finding out that their child has Down syndrome to join support groups and get involved with Down syndrome associations so that they can have uh, more exposure to people with the condition and see the wide range of abilities and achievements seen in people with Down syndrome. So again, knowing that the genome is a big place and that there's different, you know, kind of known um, drivers for the ones that we know about, and there's, you know, other regions that we don't yet know how to in interpret medically, um, it's clear there are different kinds of genetic testing. Could you give a, a little more of a, of a definition of those different types of genetic tests? Yeah, we can dive in on that a little bit more because um, I said there's thousands, but I can generalize and categorize them in a, a bit. So in, in genetic counseling and what we're talking about today, what we mainly focus on is something called germline clinical genetic testing. So germline is just a, a technical word that refers to the DNA you inherited from your parents. And the clinical part, meaning the results of the tests may be used by your healthcare team to guide your medical management, um, that the results could have implications for your health. So non-clinical germline genetic testing would be things like ancestry testing. So still looking at the DNA from your parents that you were born with, but it's, it's more for a recreational use. It doesn't have implications for your health necessarily. 
Um, other types of clinical genetic testing may include tumor testing, where we're actually looking at the DNA from the tumor or a cancer, where again, that's not necessarily the, the DNA that you inherited from your parents. Tumors actually acquire mutations over time in the process of becoming cancer. And so these types of tumor tests where we're analyzing that tumor tissue um, may also be referred to as molecular profiling, somatic testing, or by some other trade names. Some of you may have heard of them if you know or have been affected um, by cancer. These tests are often ordered by an oncologist to the cancer doctor to determine the best course of treatment for the tumor. And they typically do not involve inherited risk, although they can. Um, and it's usually, again, a separate test from the types of tests that, that we're offering in clinic, which is, again, it's a blood or saliva sample that's looking at the DNA that you were inherited with. Um, and then I'll mention one other broad type of genetic testing um, is that's clinical as well as prenatal testing, where a pregnant person is having a screening test to evaluate the health of the baby. So we're involved in a lot of different specialties. And as I mentioned, there's thousands of different genetic tests. And that's why I feel our jobs are so important is to help educate you know, the patients, the public, and the care teams on what test is most appropriate for this patient's specific situation. You said it, but just so it's clear to our audience, you know, with something like a cancer where there's a tumor that's developed changes over time, you know, we don't we don't know what those are without some ability to sample that tissue. And sometimes the most direct is to have a biopsy or a piece of that tissue itself, uh, which of course for some diseases is difficult to get to. Um, so it's again, like you said, a conversation with the care team about um, what the what the right uh, action is. So for those yeah. listening. Um, how would they go about getting genetic testing done? Well, yes. So I will say clinical genetic testing, so one that has impact for your care, your health care, should be done through a healthcare provider's office. Um, you know, typically a primary care doctor will refer patients who have certain red flags for hereditary conditions to a genetic counselor. Um, so they'll review that personal and family history and have a discussion about the genetic testing available. Um, then based on that conversation and the patient's decision-making, the genetic counselor will typically order, order the, the test that was discussed that the patient decided on, and then provide interpretation of the test results back to the patient and their primary care doctor or whoever referred them um, for the follow-up and the medical management recommendations. So with more genetic counseling services being available through virtual visits now since the mm -hmm. pandemic, what we're trying to do is create easier access for people to receive genetic consultations. Um, and then in most cases, actually, you know, even with the pandemic, what we did is we just shipped um, a collection tube to their house, a saliva collection tube, where they just spit in a tube and then they can um, mail that off after their virtual visits done. And we get the sample in the lab and it's all in a prepaid envelope and make it as, as, as easy as possible for them. Um, and then we can call them for a virtual health um, results follow-up appointment as well. So we're trying to streamline that access to get the genetic testing done and, and make it easier for people, um, either through virtual visits or in-person visits, but again, typically referred by their doctor or primary care team member. So that's for the clinical testing when it's to, you know, has implications for their health. But the new area that we're seeing a lot of um, advertised online is the recreational genetic testing that I had mentioned earlier, or something called 
direct-to-consumer genetic testing. Um, it's kind of like an over-the-counter type of test. And mm -hmm. so that testing is available without a provider's order. And it's something that consumers usually access online through the different companies that offer it just right on their website. They put in their credit card information and the testing company mails them a kit. And they, again, similar collection idea where they spit in the tube and then mail it back. Um, that information is not reviewed by a doctor or a healthcare provider. It's not part of their medical record. And we typically are not using that in healthcare decision-making. So that's, um, that kind of receiving those results and, and ordering the test is all directly through that company, through that website. The healthcare team's typically not involved in that. I uh, appreciate that. And for the viewers, you know, are there actually benefits to those over-the-counter tests? You mentioned they don't go into the medical decision-making. You know, it's a different, uh, different rigor uh, that's done for those. Um, but are there benefits to those? Oh, this is such a loaded question. <laughs> so I think the potential is is great. And I think, you know, there are some technologies that are that are getting there. But but health benefits, you know, not typically. I think it, it's subject to interpretation, right? So if if you did a recreational test that supposedly evaluated your athletic potential, and based on the results of that test you did online, you decided to exercise more and eat healthier, then yes, that's a benefit. But I'm guessing your doctor was already making that recommendation. <laughs> so I think it's really more of, you know, the benefits being um, if the results of the recreational tests are motivating behavior and lifestyle changes. Um, and then the other benefits could be like connecting with family members, because a lot of these ancestry tests, you can discover family relations um, and discovering more about your ancestral background, which can be fun. Um, and I also just want to say there's a little bit of a buyer beware message <laughs> I want to send here. Um, that is, there are many people who have jumped into this recreational testing thinking it was just for fun, but then discovered something potentially very damaging about their family, such as the brother. Yeah, surprising. Yeah. Like family relationships can be complicated, or maybe yeah. someone was adopted and they were never told. Um, so it, these recreational tests really have the potential to uncover family secrets, which can be difficult to deal with. So imagine, you know, being gifted a test from your mother um, to find out about your ancestry. And that test really revealed you had a brother you didn't know about. <laughs> uh, that becomes quite an interesting gift and a conversation now to have with your family. So again, buyer beware. Indeed, indeed. Um, so all of these, you know, the theme here is around, you know, genetic testing, genetic counseling, um, and its relationship with family history. So could you tell about how family history relates to genetic testing? Yes. So family history. So ideally, we have both pieces of information. We have genetic testing information that tells us about the DNA and the person's makeup, but then also family history, because the genetic test is not the end-all be-all. It can't tell us everything. The family history is what, how it's played out over generations. You know, how has this genetic predisposition shown in, in someone's individual family? And we really want to interpret those together to fully understand a person's risk for developing the condition. Um, however, many people don't have a complete family history available mm -hmm. to them. They just don't know. So we work with what we've got. You know, something I want to add to that too and get your comment about is Often a negative family history is itself a really important part of the puzzle, piece of the puzzle. 
So, you know, many conditions, many people with, uh, so in, in our work, as you know, you know, we focus on um, rare uh, diseases, which collectively are quite common, uh, but each of them individually affects a smaller number of people. Um, and there, many of the genetic changes were not inherited. They were de novo is the drug and term, right? They were, they were, they came in the embryo itself and didn't come from mom or dad. And so maybe comment a little bit on that, uh, Jenny, about negative family history. Yes. So being able to rule things out in the family. And when we say, well, we look back at this family history and we didn't see, you know, any history of X, Y, or Z, it can help us understand potential inheritance patterns, which you're, you're referring to the de novo, meaning brand new, something mm -hmm. that's brand new in an individual, you know, having a child that's affected with a condition and you look back at the family history and say, there was no warning of this. There was nothing that we saw. You know, and that's part of the genetic counselor's evaluation. You know, could this be a recessive condition where mom and, and dad were carriers but didn't display any symptoms themselves? Mm -hmm. Or could this be what you were speaking of de novo, something that's brand new that happened, a genetic mutation that happened in the embryo that wasn't going back generations? So yeah, there's a lot, a lot to discover. I kind of compare it to an investigation like Sherlock Holmes, you know, trying to uncover yeah. clues. And the family history can sometimes give us clues, but sometimes not. Absolutely. And in some ways it is a little bit of a loose, for some conditions, a kind of a loose proxy for a genetic, you know, where, where, how is this coming through the genetics of the family? Um, one other buyer beware point as, as the data science bioinformatician side of things is these companies you know, not it's just, it is what it is, but you know they're they're not thinking about um, medical data privacy, and that's just another buyer beware sort of 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 note uh, for our viewers. Um, yes, Jenny, I always Thanksgiving... tell people to read the consent form, read the seventeen page consent form that's in five point font. <laughs> yeah, before you say yes, four ninety nine is fine. Um, with Thanksgiving coming up, what are some of the conversations? Um, that, you, that you would say uh, our viewers could have with family about health history? Yeah, I was really happy about the timing of today's program because Thanksgiving's coming up and we're looking forward to spending time with family and eating too much and all that great stuff. Yeah. Um, there are some really great resources um, we'd like to provide everyone to help them collect family history information. We're going to put those um, in the chat. Um, it's really important to collect and document this information in an organized way. Um, these are oral stories that go back generations and they can be forgotten or details misremembered. And often when the keeper of this information passes away, that information's gone permanently, unfortunately. So starting to write things down, talking with the elders in your family, the, the, the keepers of the family history knowledge, asking questions, um, and then again, organizing that, those responses. So Thanksgiving is National Family History Day here in the United mm -hmm. States. So it's a great opportunity to connect with some relatives. Maybe you don't see that often and start asking some of these questions about their health history. Um, it's relevant to ask about things like what type of health issues people have had, such as cancer and heart disease or neurologic conditions, which all can have a hereditary component. And then also to document if there's any specific diagnoses, specific conditions, and, and what age also were people first diagnosed with the condition. Because in general, when we see conditions that are diagnosed at a younger age, we have a higher suspicion that that could be something inherited. So for example, knowing that an uncle had colon cancer in his 30s, when most colon cancers diagnosed in people after 60 years of age, that's something you'd want to report back to your primary care doctor. 
Um, and you know, you can write down all of that information and, and provide it to your care team at your next healthcare visit or send it in a MyChart message. Um, and I think sometimes it's hard for folks to initiate these conversations with their family members, particularly if your family isn't maybe one that has shared a lot in the past. So maybe starting with your why, you know, starting with the fact that maybe you saw this program and it got you thinking about what conditions you might be at risk for or your children. And um, starting with a real heartfelt why, you know, that we know now more about genetics, we know more about how to prevent and detect conditions early. So that example with the uncle with the colon cancer in his 30s, well, if you could start colonoscopies early, we could potentially prevent the colon cancer from happening again in a family member. So really explaining, you know, why we're asking these questions. We're not just asking to be nosy, we're asking because it could save someone's life. Absolutely. You know, we've actually had a couple of really great questions come through in the live stream here. So let's, let's turn to a couple to of those quick from our yeah. viewers. Great. So this is a, a wonderful question. How relevant is a mother's breast cancer diagnosis to potential health risks of her male uh, child and future offspring? Oh, I love that this question was asked. Yeah. So this is a common misconception I get in the cancer genetics clinic. And it's, you know, both public and even care providers get confused on this. So um, whether we're talking about genes for breast cancer or ovarian cancer or other, you know, organs, um, female organs, the genes that we have that increase risk for, for those cancers are carried on the same chromosomes in men and women. So it's not one of those things where you might hear people say, oh, it's, it's only in men or it's only in women. You know, genetically, we call that a sex-linked trait or X-linked trait. Um, that's not the case for cancer. Those cancer genes are on the chromosomes that we share, both men and women. And it's not that there's just one cancer gene for breast cancer and then a different cancer gene for prostate cancer, let's say in men. Um, those genes all share cancer risks. So my example that I shared earlier of BRCA1 and BRCA2, those genes were first discovered in women that had a strong family history of breast cancer. And so they're named breast cancer one, breast cancer two, but then they started to appreciate there's risk for male breast cancer. There's risk for women to get ovarian cancer. There's also risk for pancreas cancer, which can be seen in men in or either. women. Yeah. 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 And other types of cancers as well. So that whether it's, you know, having male or female descendants, it's information that should be shared broadly with, with all family members. And just a, a small add to that, which is that these, as uh, Mr. Chris just said, this is named breast cancer associated gene one, but what is it? It's a little molecular machine that is necessary for your cells um, uh, to be viable cells. It's a little nano machine that's again, all of your cells need. And if it stops working right, it can affect any tissue of the body. Another, you know, actually quite quite uh, deep question from uh, the audience. How do you, or do you believe gene editing or to remove a mutation from a fetus such as Down syndrome or a rare inherited genetic condition will be widely available and affordable in the future? And follow-up question, any thoughts on the ethics of this? So again, there's a number of facets to this. I'd be happy to add, but Jenny, please. Yeah, so, so gene editing um, is is challenging. And so the very informed question writer here, because um, we think about how do we do gene therapy for certain conditions, like for example, ocular conditions in the eye. Well, if you can edit the different cells and the, and the genes in the eye, you might be able to bring back someone's vision, for example. 
but doing gene editing on an embryo, that's where things really get dicey um, because we really don't understand the potential consequences of making that change in something that's just starting to develop. And this is where, you know, Dr. Zimmerman is very knowledgeable around epigenetics and all these other pieces of the play. When you start messing with things at that phase, we really just don't know what the downstream effects are. So that's where that ethics piece comes in. And there's a couple of different ethical points you can make around this. Mm -hmm. um, but that's why a lot of this work right now is strictly reserved in the animal modeling or other cell culture work where they can explore these in a controlled laboratory setting, not on humans, and really be able to thoroughly evaluate the potential consequences and potential benefits of that sort of work. And that work will take decades. So just because we have the technology to do it, A, doesn't mean we should do it, and B, doesn't mean we should implement it right away. We have to spend a lot of time thinking not only about the scientific implications, but also the ethical implications. And I feel like we could have a whole session on this topic. What are your thoughts, well, Dr. Zimmerman? Yeah, yeah. no, it's, a, it's again, I, I love that someone asked the question because it is an important one. And it's one that I've had audience members ask in, in talks for over a decade now. So I think it's, it's, it's on people's minds, clearly, you know, can, can we fix this? I would want to add a couple of things um, if we have if we have time here, which is the difference between gene editing and gene therapy. Mm -hmm. So, for example, right now there's a number of people who are born with um, they're called storage disorders, different kinds of storage disorders. Basically, you know, your your all the cells in your body have to take out the trash, and if they can't do that, if the garbage disposal gets clogged, so to say, or the conveyor belt stops, things pile up. And when a little bit of a mess, a pileup isn't too much, too much of a problem. But over years of accumulation, they get so much junk laying around. Junk. It's not it, junk. It doesn't have current use, right? You get a, a backlog built up, and it gets in the way of everything else the cell has to do because there's just too much stuff laying around. Um, so these are kind of storage disorders. You overstore in your cells. So if you can, you know, give a, a, a shot or a pill that can replace the machine that clears that stuff out you can treat, you know, without editing the genome. And so there's a number of things like that where a genetic therapy or, or some kind of uh, something in this direction might be a lot more feasible um, because you're not changing how the system works. You're not changing the blueprint of the body, so to say. Um, the other thing is the technical uh, piece of, if you have a single, like if you do in in vitro fertilization, you have a single embryonic cell, maybe, you know, editing that is, is feasible. But as soon as you have a multi-cell um, uh, organism, uh, uh, it's hard to get every cell uniformly edited. Like right now, there's some real, we can, we can do it in cells and, and in animals, but there's some real technical challenges to doing this, um, you know, outside of a single cell stage. Again, I think our viewers are interested in this. So I'll say there have been a couple of high profile in the news cases where people did this in humans. And the result was um, a person who's mosaic. So getting what I mean by this is like, just like a, a mosaic, a tile mosaic, where you have many different um, colors, many different aspects, many cells in their body have a different genome. So when Jenny said that we don't know exactly what's going to happen, when people tried doing this, um, multiple events happened, multiple genome editing events happened, and different cells in these children's bodies carry different, slightly different genomes. And we have no idea what that's going to mean for them developmentally. 
So there are some of the knowns that we that we know what the risks are. Here, this is an area where um, there's a lot of unknowns. So it's again, like Jenny brought up too, there's a lot of um, uncertainty associated with some of what we find. And there's uncertainty with how, what would happen when we apply some of these techniques um, in, in people. And importantly, the international scientific community really having some pretty strict opinions about not entering this sort of work um, and condoning that those sort of human types of experiments. Um, unfortunately, some people may go out on their own and do something like that, but not in the United States yeah. and certainly the international scientific community. And even in the, made a stand. in the countries where this happened, the individuals, uh, uh, um, I think that's important. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's a good way to say it. So I think in the interest of time, you know, Jenny, any, any last words about um, family history, genetic testing, and what our viewers could do to perhaps um, in the coming months, you know, to have that dialogue with their family? Yeah, well, I feel like we're just scratching the surface. So I have a couple of thoughts. One is if you're interested in hearing more about this and your questions didn't get answered, um, you know, we're always looking for new topics to explore. So maybe we have to do a part B or <laughs> offshoot of this. We'd love to do that. Um, and then the second part, just regarding the kind of action to take moving forward, um, again, thinking about being curious, having those conversations with family members and thinking about how, you know, the past does not have to repeat itself. So if you do have a strong family history of cancer, let's say, that doesn't mean that you're destined to get cancer. It means that we should probably figure out what's going on and we should explore that a little bit further. And maybe through genetic testing and family history analysis, we determine we can take some action so that history doesn't repeat itself. So try to empower yourself with this information. The information can be incredibly valuable. We just have to make sure we're getting accurate information from family members you're ordering appropriate genetic testing, and then really working with your care management team to develop those specific things that we can do to prevent diseases from happening in the future. Absolutely. And, you know, something, one last note, if you don't mind, you know, something that I think is is very important about the area of genetic testing, again, without getting into details, is, is that there's an enduring value um, to the genetic information. And what I mean by that, it's that there's a certain amount that we know now, and that's very useful as, as Ms. Gertz has, has articulated well. But in five years and 10 years, we're going to know more than we know now. And so coming back to the question of, well, is there any update to my information is a good conversation to have as well. And with that, I want to thank Ms. Gertz for joining us today. We appreciate you taking the time to talk to us on this really important topic. Happy to do so. Thank you. If we did not get to your question, please feel free to drop an email to conversations at mcw.edu. I hope you all join us next month for a virtual coffee break and a conversation with a scientist. The Medical College of Wisconsin's Coffee Conversations with Scientists is sponsored by the Advancing a Healthier Wisconsin Endowment. Coffee Conversations with Scientists occur monthly as Facebook Live events and are produced by the Medical College of Wisconsin. We hope you join us next month for another virtual coffee break and a conversation with a scientist.